Podcast, the official podcast of Plymouth Argyle Football Club with Charlie Price. Hello, yes, this is the Argyle Podcast. I am Charlie Price. Hope you are all well. Thanks a lot for tuning in once again. Uh, now, a lot has happened over the last couple of weeks. We've got a brand new head coach, a player has come in. In the January transfer window too, uh, and it will be a busy couple of weeks going forward. Uh, so to help get us through all of those long journeys that are coming up and the spare days during the week, uh, we've got uh, a whole host of great podcasts lined up for you over the next fortnight or so. Uh, and we'll start off today with a a real special. It's uh, we're someone that I've been trying to get on board for a while. Uh, because of where they currently are playing uh, and the time difference and the fact that there are so many games for him to play has made it a little bit tricky. But we did manage to get some time over the Christmas and New Year period to put aside an hour or so and thrash it out. Peter Hartley will forever be an Argyles history because of that goal he scored against Portsmouth in the playoff semi-final of 2016. It was one of the most euphoric moments for Argyle supporters and was right up there in his career highlights. This is the story of the yard dog, Peter Hartley. Plymouth Argyle have taken the lead at Stamford Bridge. Can you believe this? You're listening to the Argyle Podcast, the official podcast of Plymouth Argyle Football Club. Peter Hartley, scorer of... I'm going to say one of our most memorable goals, especially in recent history. But I've, I'm going to say up there in most of Argyle's history. Uh, welcome to the Argyle podcast. You're back from India for a couple of days and I, I've ruined your holiday by saying, come on the podcast, eh? I'm honoured you've just said that, mate. I'm honoured you've just said uh, probably one of the, the, the most mem- memorable goals in Argyle's history. Um, it's definitely one of the most special moments in my career, for sure. If it's not, got, the most. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be. It's got to be there. I think most Argyle supporters will have that down as one of the the most iconic moments that they remember watching Argyle. The drama around it was just unbelievable. Yeah, the. Uh, do you know what? Looking back now. Um, I think it was meant to be because obviously when we played at Fratton Park, I was having a little bit of uh, back and forth with, with Gary Roberts. And uh, I remember, I, I think I smashed him in our half. He went to turn me and I just lifted him. And he called me a yard dog. He's an angry little scouse man. I actually, I was, I was on the coaching license with him. He's actually a decent bloke. But um, at the time, <laughs> at the time. angry little scouse on the pitch. And he's turned around, called me a yard dog. And... Uh, the Plymouth, the Plymouth of the media got got hold of it and started making a big yeah. thing of it. Then nil nil, ninety first minute, I believe, and then the yard yeah. dog pops up at the back post, and <laughs> <laughs> the rest great. is history. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 yes. As I say, unbelievable moment. But the the other sort of incredible part of your story, I think, is is what you're doing now out in India. Um, We've been, we'll let everybody into a little secret, shall we? We've been trying to set up this podcast for maybe two or three weeks. 
Um, but obviously time differences and you being kind of in the middle of playing your season out in India at the moment was was tricky to set it up. But how are how are things over there at the moment for you? Fantastic. Um, it's been it's been a difficult three or four months with regards to travel, and like we discussed off off off. Uh, um, obviously, for a little bit of information that, that for people that don't really know much about it, I've joined a team called Intakashi. Um, they've only been created maybe five or six months ago. Um, they're owned by Atletico Madrid, so the head coaches from Atletico Madrid, all of the staff are from Atletico Madrid. Um, so the club's new. Um, we haven't got a base yet with regards to a home pitch. Um, it couldn't be created in enough time. So we played nine of our first 11 games, I believe, away from home. We did try to play one at home and the pitch was like a beach. So yeah, okay. the, the head coach wasn't happy, obviously, with the high standards of Atletico. He, he was he was disgusted with the, the, the pitch. So I do believe now we've relocated from Varanasi to Calcutta. And we'll be playing the second half of the season in Calcutta. So we do have an advantage with regards to playing our next 10 games out of 12 at home. So yeah. it's, it's, uh, we've had a good start. We're steady away. We're mid-table and we've got an advantage second half of the season. So hopefully we can really push push up the top of the league for for promotion to the ISL, which is which is the main goal, mate. Yeah. I've, um, I've just had a look at um, uh, the Intercashi sort of website I suppose and um, I'm disappointed that you don't wear red and white striped shirts like Atletico Madrid <laughs> yeah but also you shouldn't be that disappointed that's the same colour exit aware mate oh I've, I've set him up perfectly <laughs> look at that set him up perfectly yeah, yeah. <laughs> no um, very very true yeah I think it's more of tr- tradition with regards to Varanasi um, I think th- there's a little bit of history behind the name in Takashi as well I don't really know where it is, so I don't want to. I don't want to bluff you on that. But um, yeah, it's 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 the colours of the of the state of Aranasi, um, blue, and it's a little bit like Inter Milan, isn't it? The away kit, the blue mm. and black one, and then obviously we've got the the traditional orange for the home kit, which I believe is is in the Indian national flag as well. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I didn't know any of that, so you don't worry. Um, I'm just happy that I managed to set you up for a, for an extra city slamming. That's the best bit <laughs> of the day so far. Well, I've seen what Jay's <laughs> I've seen the thing that Jay Stansfield done uh, when he played Birmingham. Oh, yeah. I've seen that a couple of weeks ago where he's uh, once a red, always a red um, on his shirt. So I don't think the fans are going to be too happy about that. So I just thought I'd make no. it one up there. <laughs> and that, that once a green, done. always a green, buddy. <laughs> Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. This is the Argyle Podcast. Growing up, if someone said to you, you know, a young lad from the northeast, that you will, you know, be at, towards the end of your career, but playing, winning a title and playing in India. I mean, you can't have imagined that would have ever happened. No, not in a, not in a month of Sundays. Um, it was it was unique how I came around as well. Uh, I just come off the back of, of a very successful season at Motherwell. We finished third in the in the um, Scottish Premier League, and we got in the Europa League. Um, obviously, I was captain of the team there. And then COVID hit, and everything got flung up in the air. Um, clubs are cutting the budgets left, right, and centre. And I spoke to the manager at Motherwell, and they just couldn't really afford to to keep me. He was very honest. He was like, "Listen, 
I wouldn't embarrass you with the offer we can give you kind of thing. And and that was it. So for, for two or three months after that, I was just running like the majority of footballers really were out unemployed at the time and, and didn't know what um what was gonna be next with regards to COVID. I was just road running, going, you know, you couldn't really go to gyms, <clears throat> doing the home gym with my wife, uh road running a lot and then I got out the bath one morning and, and Stephen Robinson, my old Motherwell manager, rang me and he said, I've had Owen Coyle on the phone. Um, he wanted your phone number. Um, he wants to know if he'd be interested in going to going to India. So I said, yeah, no problem. Then I believe it was about 24 hours later, Owen rang me and honestly, what a bloke, mate. What <laughs> unbelievable human being, honestly. Within the first five minutes of the conversation, I was there. I felt like I was already on the plane with him. He's just, uh, he just has a knack of, his human qualities are next to nothing. Um, the way he speaks to you, the way he treats you. And then even when I ended up going over there, um, obviously because of I wanted to play for him as well with his history as a coach. Um, and then when I got over there and I really you found out who he was because we, we played the first season in a bio bubble. So we were oh, yeah. allowed to leave the hotel. We had to get tested every day. So you're practically live, like, living on each other's doorstep, um, which is quite unique from a player-manager standpoint because managers like to keep the distance from players kind of thing. But, you know, I got to know Owen really, really well. And I, f I actually felt like my kids were his grandkids. You know, he's, he's an unbelievable bloke. And it's no secret that he's very successful in India. Um, he's back out there now doing well with Chennai. Um, he's in a transition period at the time with regards to the players he's, he has and his players that were already under contract. So I, I believe next season he'll, he'll rocket them right up the top of the league like he did with Jamshedpur. So... Um, you know, I love playing for him, um, mm. and I believe our paths will cross again in the future. But it was unique how I came around, mate. And they say everything happens for a reason. I was at an yeah. all-time high with finishing third in the SPL, getting in the Europa League, something I thought I'd never achieve, you know, 30-year-old. And then all of a sudden, I come crashing back down to earth with not getting the opportunity to play in the Europa League the next season. You know, they didn't renew my contract. And then, you know, another one door closes, uh, another one opens, and I get, I get a, a great chance to go to India and, and, you know, a new way of life, learn new coaches and, and a, new, a new style of football, that's for sure. It's completely yeah. different to, to Europe and the UK. And um, I'm very, very, very grateful that I've, I've got this opportunity. Yeah. We'll, we'll dive into the Indian journey in, in a little bit more detail. But um, I want to start right at the beginning with you, Pete, like we do with, with every guest on the Argyle podcast. And it's, it's to kind of learn about your journey into football as well as, obviously, the, the journey that we've seen since you've been a pro. So, uh, obviously, we, we all know you from the northeast. First club was Sunderland, but were you, were you a Sunderland fan? Were you a Newcastle fan? Were you a Hartlepool fan? I was a Hartlepool fan, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, True, I was bro. a Hartlepool fan. Um, my uncle used to take me to Hartlepool games from from being six, seven years old. And then I was in, I was at, I was at Middlesbrough from a seven, eight-year-old. Um, and then I moved to Sunderland under 12s and I come right through the system at Sunderland. And I think I grew into a Sunderland fan. 
you know, being yeah. there so long, having affiliation with the club and, and getting to know the people around the club, the good people. Um, I went up there in the summer and done a little bit of coaching with the 23s. But, uh, yeah, I come right through the system, done the youth, under-18s with Kevin Ball, who's a Sunderland legend. He, uh, he was my youth team coach, so I was very fortunate to have him as a coach. He just retired. Um, then, you know, the transition with the hierarchy um, took place. Niall Quinn took over. He, uh, he employed Roy Keane as manager. Mm. Roy Keane brought a lot of Man United staff with him. Uh, Ricky Sprazier, Neil Bailey, um, Raymond van der Gaal, goalkeeper coach. And then I was in the under-21s at the time. <clears throat> I think I was 19-year-old. Um, I had Neil Bailey as a, as a 21s coach. Unbelievable coach. Uh, I, I actually remember messaging him when I'd left the club saying, like, if, if this didn't happen and you weren't my coach, I don't believe I'd, uh, I'd have had a professional career because in such a short space of time, he brought me on so much and, and made me believe in myself and understand the game a lot, a lot more simple. So I always thought I was a late developer, you know, with regards to football. I knew mm. the ability was there, but it's just the understanding of the game. And then um, New Year's Day, 2007, Leicester away. Roy Keane takes three young boys. Um, and there was only one space on the bench. And I remember as all three of us sat in the room the night before New Year's Eve, like, who's it going to be? Is it going to be me? <laughs> you? And it ended up being me. And then about the 70th minute, he tells me to warm up. And my legs are like jelly on a plate. Like, this isn't happening, you know. And then about 75th minute, he, uh, he gives me my professional league debut in the championship. I come on left back um, for Ross Wallace or uh, Tobias Heisen, one of the two. Um, and I'll never forget it, you know. He said to me in the dressing room after the game, he came up to me and he just said, uh, congratulations, there's, a, there's another 200 games in those legs. And that was it. I was going out. Unbelievable feeling, mate. I'll never forget my professional debut. And more importantly, the man who gave me it, you know, he gives, he gives nothing to people for free, Roy Keane. So, you know, you, you've got to earn everything, every yard on the pitch. And for him to believe in me and put me on that pitch meant a lot for me. Yeah, I was going to say that he doesn't strike me as a type of um, character, not knowing him personally, any, obviously, but that would just hand out, you know, a debut to any to any player. So for it to have come from a an, a guy like that, but also a legend of the game too, must have just been insane. Yeah, it was. I mean, I trained with the first team quite a lot, mate. But as a youngster, you never really believe that, you know, you think you're just making the numbers up or whatnot. You never really believe that you deserve to be there. Then when he, he gave me my debut, it was like, I've obviously been training with these guys for a long time for a reason. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was a special feeling. And you're right, he set standards so high in training, like he didn't, didn't matter whether you were Dwight York or Pete Hartley, you know, 36-year-old season pro, won the Champions League or a young boy trying to make his, his way in the game. He, he treated everyone the same and he set the standards as him, um, which is credit to him as a, as a person and, a, and a, a manager. Yeah. That, that ended up being your only game, I think, for Sunderland, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was. So, um, when It sounds trying... like I had a stinker, doesn't it? It sounds like I came on <laughs> and a stinker and that was it. <laughs> yeah, never no, seen again. I'll tell you what happened, mate. I, uh, I was... 
I had a genetic problem with my right hip and I'd been struggling with it for a while. And I ended up having a hip operation not long after. Um, and that ruled me out for the rest of the season. And then the following season, I came back, got fit and went on loan to Chesterfield. And then, um, and then at the end of that season, I think it was like a six-month loan, I come back and played in the under-21s under and uh, I had a stinker. Um, when I went on loan at Chesterfield, any young pro can relate to what I'm saying here. You're in a first-team environment in League mm. One, League Two. You come back to under-21 under environment and you have like this chip on your shoulder. You feel like you don't deserve to be there. You played first-team football. Why am I back with the, the, the kids, even though you still are a kid? Um, and I just didn't have the right attitude going back and he actually released me mate Roy Keane he pulled me into his office he released me um, he just said yeah attitude's not being great blah 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 we, you know there's nothing here for you and there was about two months left of the season and I think he released about six or seven boys and I remember going home and I broke down to my parents and I was like mm. what, do I, what do I go from here kind of thing you know I'm only 19, 20 and my dad said, well, just keep going in training and, and, and some of my pop-up, you know, keep yourself fit. So I decided you, get an, you, you had an option if you got released. You can come and keep training or you can, you know, just go your separate ways. So I kept going, kept training two months and I was going in, doing a bit of swimming on the morning and then training, then gym on the afternoon and done this. It was about the fifth or sixth week. And uh, the, the, I was in the gym one afternoon, the analyst, Bodza, came downstairs and he said, Peter, the gaffer wants you upstairs. And uh, I walked back into his office. I said, Gaffer, did you want to speak to me? I thought, you know, there'd be, he's got a phone call from someone in League Two and hopefully, you know, I, I get a chance. And he just sat me down and he said, yeah, listen, um, I've seen the way you've worked the last five or six weeks and, you know, I think I might have made a mistake. I'd like to give you a new contract. Wow. So he gave me a new deal, yeah. So he, uh, he gave me a new one-year, one two-year contract, I believe off the back of me making a decision to keep going in. Mm. So, uh, you know, he, he released me six weeks prior, Roy Keane, and he pulled me back in his office and seen, seen the change in attitude and give me, give me a lifeline. And, and boy, did I take it, mate. I, uh, yeah. We, were, we had an unbelievable under-21 team at the time, the next season, the following season. Uh, Martin Waghorn, Jordan Henderson, David Myler, Trevor Carson, uh, we signed a couple of young boys from Paris Saint-Germain. We had, we, and we were beating everybody. We won the the, the twenty-one league, and then um, then Roy Keane got sacked at the end of the Premier League season, and Ricky Spurrier took over. And he he gave us all one option. He said, "Listen, I don't know who's going to come in as head coach. He's have had an unbelievable under twenty-one season. I'm going to mm. give you all a one-year contract." Um, you can take it and then take your chance, whoever comes in. It, it was Steve Bruce, but he didn't know at the time. And then um, I had an option to go to Harleypool that offered me a three-year contract. And obviously, we previously just spoke. It's a team I support. So I took a decision to leave and go to my hometown club and, and the other boys took the one-year contract at Sunderland. Yeah. And obviously, they all, they all went on, some more than others, played more than others, obviously, for Sunderland. But they, they all, the ones you've mentioned anyway, went on and have had great careers in the game. Um, played, obviously, for Sunderland for a bit too, the likes of Myler and, and Henderson in particular. But it's quite good in a way, isn't it, Pete? That you've, you've, taken, you've taken the decision yourself kind of to be like, actually, I think 
you know, I think Hartlepool might be a, a good place to go. Obviously, you had the emotional connection there. But not, you know, if you if you go rewind like a year and a bit when you were when you were originally told by Roy Keane you're out the door and the feeling you had there of not knowing where to go, whereas now you have a choice and it just shows how quickly things change and you made the choice rather than it being forced on you. Yes, 100%. And if it was any other club, I'd probably have stayed at Sunderland. But um, it's good that I'd worked so hard to put myself in that kind of situation. But uh, you do learn when you get older, Charlie, that a week is a long time in football, never mind a year. So, uh, you know, you can be the the cream of the crop one week and then get pumped the next week and you're lower than a snake's belly. So you do learn with experience that you never get too high when things are going well and you never get too low when they're not. You, you've got to stay level-headed and I think that's one of the secrets to uh, to being successful and having definitely longevity. It's one of the secrets yeah. to longevity in the game for sure. Yeah. What was it like playing for your, for your club then? Did you feel like top rooster with all your mates? I felt... Uh, Unbelievable pressure, to be honest. I played You're left right, back okay. for the first season. It was it was horrible. I had a really bad season. We just stayed up in League One by by the skin of our teeth on the last game of the season at Brentford away. Um, didn't have a great season. I, I was overwhelmed with a young, erratic kid, you know, trying to try too hard on the pitch and everything's going wrong for him kind of thing. And um, Second season, I started on the bench probably due to due to me me performances at left back, which I'm mm. not a left back in uh, in the first <laughs> year. Then then there was an injury. Uh Plymouth away, believe it or not. Wow. Uh it was an injury. We had Tony Sweeney pulled his hamstring. Gary Liddle went into midfield and I went centre half. And that was it. Against yeah. Bradley Wright Phillips. Uh I think I think Peter Reed was manager, I think, and Craig Noon was playing on the right wing. Them days. Um, yeah, do you remember them days, do you? Um, I, I, un, unfortunately, I do because it was the, a real a downward spiral for the club at, at the time. I'm, I don't remember the game, Pete, so I'm going to look it up because I want right. to find out how well you did in there. Uh, we won 1-0. Um, oh, OK, there you go. We won 1-0, yeah, and uh, that was it. That was me. That, that was my career as a centre-half really starting to take off a, a, a good standard in, in League One and I think I played about 190 games after that Hartley Pool. Mm. Um, and, and kicked right on, really. 2010, was it? Yeah, here we go. 2010, yeah, God, it's a lifetime yeah. goal. Yeah, so... Centre-back, Peter Hartley, yeah. Actually got the highlights here. 87th minute winner at home park. Yeah. Wright Phillips, Balassi, Joe Mason, Carrie Arneson, Carl Fletcher, Craig Nude. I mean, I always talk about this period in Argyle's <laughs> history and think we were terrible, but the team... If they'd had See, a year would be together, would have been great. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. I, I want to take, they, they were. I want to take you to um, twenty thirteen. So forward a couple of years. Yeah, game against Notch County. I think you know what's coming here. Go on. Oh, I thought this would be the most regular question asked of you. Um, well, so if I were to say. Um, it was a, it was a, obviously a famous game because oh, yes, the goal yes, scorers yes, that yes, day yes. were Peter Hartley and James Paul. Yes, yes. unbelievable <laughs> day. The only thing that went wrong that day is James Paul scored first. Oh, did he? He's ruined yes. it. Yeah. Yes, he ruined it. I wish it was me that scored first and it would have been a perfect day. But yeah, <laughs> wow, what an incredible... Uh... <laughs> 
I think has that ever happened in football before? I don't believe it has. Well, I can't. You know, that it, it would take a long way to to kind of look it up, but it's. Yeah. Um, I remember it happening, and the other. I think one of the things that made it even better was it was on. It would have come up on Gillette Soccer Saturday, and Jeff Stelling, obviously being a massive Hartlepool fan, always went ballistic when Hartlepool scored. But at that moment, even more so. I mean, you're not thinking this during the game, surely, when you score after Je- after James Ball has scored. You're thinking, hang on, this is quite funny. Wait, wait. But then the, the media thing after us must have been pretty crazy. Didn't, honestly, Charlie, we didn't have a clue, mate. Um, <laughs> I mean, why would the only you? time me and, me and Pooley, me and Pooley, I got, when the penny dropped was after 90 minutes, uh, cameras on the pitch, yeah. photographs of, of us both then turning around and the shirts and got in the dressing room and I'm like, what's that? And then the penny drops and you're like, oh, I can't believe this. This is, for me, for sure, very special because I'm a Hartlepool fan. Pete Hartley from Hartlepool, he saw in the game with James Poole, Hartley and Poole. It's like, wow. Yeah, but uh, well, I, I take my son to quite a lot of the games um, and it's still in the reception when you walk in the reception, when we go to play. The Hartley, our two shirts are still there, Hartley and Phil. So my son Emerson, uh, he loves it every time he sees it. He's like, oh, that's you, Daddy. That's your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, 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 it is, things like that just make you smile, don't they, I think, when you, when you have a little moments like that. Yeah, 100%. That's incredible. Incredible. <clears throat> um, as you mentioned, you, you went on and played over 150 times, I think, for, for Hartley Paul and... Um, you know, it had had great moments like that. It you then also got relegated with them, um, yeah. which must have been pretty tough because obviously getting relegated anyway is pretty tough. But because you've um, you've had the affinity with the club and you know how much it means to supporters and the staff and everything that 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 must have been. Well, what was that like? What was that little period like? Horrendous, man. To be totally honest, um, I'm going to talk about. How I felt at the time first, and then hindsight looking back, which is quite easy. Um, so at the time, it was you feel like you're in a funk and you can't get out of it. There's no release from what's happening on the pitch. I lived in the town, which was probably a bad decision on my behalf. I should have maybe moved out of the town when when I moved to the club. Um, so there was no release when things are going well. You know, people patting me on the back, stopping you in supermarkets, all well done mm. and whatnot. But you see, you see how much this football club means to the fans when it's not going well. Um, and as I was captain as well. I was 23-year-old, I believe, and I was captain of the club. Um, and it hit me hard. It hit me hard from an emotional standpoint. It hit me hard from a personal standpoint. And with regards to my family, it hit me hard also. You know, I'd go for food with my wife. People would be coming up to us at the table. What, what the, what the mm. fuck's going on? You know, what we sort it out. And I'm just like, can't even go for food with me misses, you know, there's no release. So when we did get relegated, I made the decision to to move clubs, uh, which was very, very hard for me. Because from the outside looking in, it looks like I jumped ship. Um, you know, they got relegated, I jumped ship back to League One. Um, and it's not it's not the case. Uh, the case is I've done it for the sake of my family, you know, get get out of the town. And for the sake of myself, to, to try and really rebuild my career. 
which obviously you're going to get to, didn't really work. <laughs> I got well, relegated again the next season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, fine, okay. Um, yeah. But, but uh, yes, but uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think um, you can be too close to a team, can't you? Especially yeah, if something goes bad like that. So, well, you know, e- even if it's like, even if you think, oh, it's the best move of my career. And obviously, Stevenage under Graham Wesley, you know, had, had gone through the leagues. So, yeah. on paper, it looks like, a, you know, a decent, decent move. But even just being able to play football without having a whole town's pressure on you yeah. must, have, must have been one of the reasons. Well, the, the way well. I play... I have to have an emotional attachment to the club. I have to feel, I have to feel the club and have, have, a, have an attachment to it because I do play, I still do play with my heart on my sleeve. And, you know, if you look at my career to date with regards to we're going to go on to Stevenage now, I was at Sunderland. I'd come all the way through the system. I grew into a Sunderland fan, went to Hartlepool, which is my hometown club. You know, mm. I'd supported them as a kid and then I moved on to Stevenage. And there was just no attachment there. I couldn't, I had no feeling for the club. And I thought, wow, am I ever going to get this back? You know, it's like, I didn't, not that I didn't care. I just didn't. It's the first time I'd been in a situation where not everybody lived in the area. You know, there was people traveling from Manchester, people traveling from Nottingham. You know, not everybody lived in the area. So it was, you couldn't really create the atmosphere in the dressing room as as a team. And uh, it was the first time I'd experienced it. You know, every club I'd been at to that day, it was everyone lived in the area. You know, you, you get together as a team and do things. And Stevenage was very different. Multicultural. Mm. People lived all over London. People lived up north. I think one of the boys, Lucas Hakings, he, he was travelling from Huddersfield. <clears throat> and he was only staying in Stevenage one day a week or something, you know, before before a game. He was getting the train down and back every day. And <clears throat> excuse me. It was very It was very difficult. And then obviously I'd signed a two-year deal there and I'd realised I'd made a mistake. Um, we got relegated and I, I sat down with Graham Wesley at the end of that season. I said, listen, I can't, I can't stay here for one more year. I don't, I, don't, I don't really feel anything. So we'd agreed to terminate my contract. And then was, he quite good, was he good with you there, like being able to do that? He was good with me. He was, people say a lot of things about Graham Wesley, but he's a, he's a real man. Speaks <clears throat> mm. to your face, he's direct and he's honest. And I appreciated that. I, I, I like people like that. I'd rather someone tell me what I don't want to hear and it's honest than someone just tell me what they want me to hear to keep me happy and on the side, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, he was, people can say a lot of things about that bloke, but um, I actually learned a lot from him. I did. I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed working under him. He was very different with regards to football. Mm. But his meetings and his structure... Um, he was very big on mindset and psychology and it was intriguing. You know, a lot of his meetings were, were quite, in, very long, too long, but intriguing. The Argyle Podcast with Charlie Price. And then obviously you came down to Argyle. So yeah. that's, it's not like it's, it's close to anywhere you've, um, I mean, it's not as far away as <laughs> India now, clearly, but it's not yeah. as if it's close to where you're from. So why why was why was Argyle the fit for you at that time? I'll be honest, I had nothing else. 
there was no, I've been back to back. I've been relegated back to back. I knew nothing about Plymouth Argyle at the time. Um, obviously played. Against oh, then you've been there a couple of years before. You knew yeah, that, obviously. Played against them, yeah, but I, I not with regards to the club, the dressing room. Yeah. I knew nobody in the dressing room probably for the first time in my career. Um, I've been relegated two seasons in a row from League One. Uh, I sat down with my agent and I was like, this is serious. I need to rebuild. I need to rebuild my career. I'll go anywhere. I don't care. Then um, Plymouth, uh, John Sheridan, Plymouth popped up and I met Shares at, at the services up north. I had a good chat with them. And then, to be totally honest, it was, th- this is, I always say this as well when people ask me the question, coming to Plymouth was the best decision I made in my career because this is the changing point of, of me becoming a man, learning a mm. lot from back-to-back relegations, understanding what it means to be successful and how much it hurts if you're not. Um, and I think it happened at the right time for me to come to Plymouth at that kind of club in League Two that were really pushing to get promotion. Um, you know, and I wanted to be part of that. And I just felt the club straight away. As soon as I walked through the door, mate, I could, I could feel how important the club was, the fans, the area, the, the city... The people, the dressing room, the lads in the dressing room, unbelievable group. Uh, you know, Carl McHugh, Ruben Reed, mm. uh, Jake Jervis, Kev Nelson, what a blow. Luke McCormack, unbelievable human being. Uh, you know, you could just feel, I got a real good feeling for the dressing room. And if it wasn't for my family, I would have 100% stayed longer if I could, if I got the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, I mean, does that. Yeah. I'm guessing that just doesn't happen very often where you go somewhere and within, you know, within a couple of days or not even, you just feel, even though you're miles away from home, you just feel good. You're like, ah, whoa, this is a complete gear change. Yeah, it felt like home from home, mate. Honestly, it really did. It was (laughs) a million miles away from home. Yeah, yeah. I felt felt like I was at home when I was there. Um, My wife used to come down and, it was just good. Yeah, everything was good. Life was good off the pitch. I was happy. We were playing well on the pitch. Um, and then, obviously, we we just missed out in the playoff semi-final first season. Wickham beat us. And then John Sheridan decided to leave. Or whatever happened, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. And then Darren Adams came in and and we started that second season unbelievable. And then we blew up. <laughs> and we just scraped ourselves to Wembley. Um, we should have won the league. The, the the quality we had in the dressing room, we should have been out of sight. We should have won that league. Yeah. Yes, I'll come on to that season in a moment. But um, having just spoken about uh, Graham Wesley, John Sheridan, um, and again, I, I didn't really know him that well. I knew him a little bit from working in the media down down here at the time. But he he struck me as another character that was a little bit not not kind of just told you what he thought and. He clearly changed Argyle so massively from when he came in to when he left. Took over when we were bottom of the table. Left, obviously, as you just said, missing out in the playoffs. But, you know, another icon of the game as well. So you've kind of got a collection card here of of legends of football as your managers. Yeah. Um, Chez was... A bit of a free bird. He, he, he trusted his experienced pros to run his dressing room, um, which is good. A breath of fresh air. I've gone from a very controlling environment with Graham Wesley, who wanted to control everything, to Sheridan. All he cared about was winning on a Saturday. Do what you need mm. to do to 
in the week with regards to topping up in the gym, you know, uh, training was always fun, enjoyable. Our boys are always smiling, high intensity, very intense. Um, but I feel like we created that environment with the good dressing room, with your Curtis Nelsons. Yeah, we got Bobby Reed on loan from Bristol, Ruben Reed, um, myself, Carl McHugh, Louis Alexander. We created that high intensity environment because I believe we had a dressing room of winners and good humans, um, which is three quarters of the battle in football. Um, yeah. And then we yeah. shared allowing us to lose and didn't accept when we lost. You know, it was it was a good recipe for success, and I believe we were maybe one or two missing links away from from probably getting promoted that season. To be honest, and injuries as well. We had a lot of we got a lot of um, uh, unfortunate injuries at the at the wrong time during that season. I think I think Carl McHugh was playing with a, a meniscus tear for for three months in his knee. Right. It was crazy, crazy. Yeah. What um. What was the, what were those what were those playoff games like against Wickham? Because it, it kind of really st- was a, had a real hatred of each other. The two clubs, the fans did anyway. Yeah. Um, and that was it. The first semi final, the one at yeah. home. Yeah, everything. Everything just went wrong, didn't it? Yeah. Okay. They've done a job on us from set pieces for sure. Um, I don't know whether it was the occasion that got us, but. Um, I just felt like we were loose, we were slack, we weren't playing to our highest standard. Um, mm. and the, tempo, the tempo was drab from, from our point of view. And done, they, you could see they had more players in their team that had been in that situation and knew how to handle that situation. Um, and then I feel like we grew into it the season after. When we got put yeah. in that situation again, you could see that we used the experience of the Wickham game and, and we grew into it. But I think the lack of experience with regards to the dressing room not really being in this situation before. The semi-final with a chance to get a Wembley. Plymouth, uh, I beg your pardon, Wickham Wanderers had a lot of experience in that in that team and I think it showed in, uh, in that semi-final. Yeah. That second season then, <clears throat> um, you mentioned just a second ago about uh, just lacking a little bit, maybe a little bit of quality in certain areas or whatever. And, and, and I think Derek Adams probably... Well, he he definitely added that with the likes of Carey and Wild coming in. Um, that we saw in the first game of that season, didn't we? Both of them scoring. Yeah, Jake Jervis as well. Jake Jervis. Jake Jervis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, he did. Um, I think he knew he knew what was missing. I think he'd done a he's a thorough research on on the previous season and he knew what was missing and. He brought in players he knew, which is important. Um, Jake Jarvis, he'd worked with at Ross County. Graham Carey, he'd worked with. Uh, Greg Wilde was, you know, his, his level was Rangers and, and playing in Champions League games and things. So he knew the standard of the players he needed. Gary Sawyer, he brings Gary Sawyer mm. in. He was incredible for us that season, um, which is obviously he was an ex-pilgrim anyway, but he brings him back. Um, it was just... Incredible start. Obviously, you've heard about Derek Adams' death week. Sure, you've heard that, yeah? Well, remind us. Okay, so the first week of pre-season, the boys hate it. It's death week. Every single morning, you go straight to a running track. And you run. And you run, and it works its way down from the Monday to the Saturday morning, so it's a six-day run. I believe the Monday's 2,000-metre runs 
and you're doing, I think, four or five 2,000-meter runs. And then on the afternoon, you do football uh, back at home park. Tuesday is 1,500-meter runs. Wednesday, 1,000-meter runs. All the afternoons of these is football, 2v2s, 4v4s. So you're destroyed. Uh, get the Friday, goes down to 400-meter runs. Then Saturday is 100 and 200-meter runs. Um, and I believe at the time I was thinking, what is this? I've never done this before in my life. Like, I'm going on Amazon trying to order a wheelchair to take me to train. I like, can't walk, mate. Like, done. Done. Put, put, a night, put a fork in me. Like, I was finished. But then when the season starts, I'm thinking, we are running over teams that can't live with us. We're beating teams 2-0, 3-0, 4-1, 2-0, 1-0. We are running over teams. And... Then we blew up. <laughs> so I think it gets to Christmas time and we're done. We, we that's why I, I, I just felt like everyone was was mentally and physically exhausted. I don't think we got enough days off. We didn't get enough no. days mentally refresh. Did he? Did Derek call them death weeks? No, he didn't. But the players didn't. You, know, you could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite, quite rightly, yeah. And I, I think he still does it now. He's he done it the second season when he got when he won the league. Uh, that right. I left and gone then, but I think you won the league the second season or you just got promoted. You did win. You won the league too. Second, second yeah, sorry. We got promoted. Yeah. Um, Should yeah. have won the league. Okay. And it, show, it goes to show, you know, it works. And he, he's been successful, to be fair. Well, Morecambe, done, done a good job. Now he's up back up at uh, Ross County, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me about your partnership with Nels because um, it seemed to to click straight away, like like you said. And he's he's... Yeah. He's gone on to, to great things in the game too, but he um, he was a young lad, obviously, when you were were in yeah, the, a young lad. Um, by what, what was, was uh, very yeah. very wise between his ears. Great guy, the most athletically gifted footballer I've ever played with. Right now, raw power, raw speed. Um, wanted to do well, wanted to learn, listened, very level headed. He was captain at a young age, an incredible mm. captain. Um, never, ever shied away from playing. If he was injured, if his back was against the wall, if he'd had a couple of bad games, always stood up and, and you know, wanted to be counted. Um, yeah, he was a great bloke. He was an unbelievable guy. And I think we clicked so well because he was a good guy, you know, and, and we both wanted to make the, the relationship work on the pitch. And we complimented each other really well. He was he was fast, I was slow. <laughs> so I talked a lot and I helped him grow into his into his, his captain role. Obviously having the experience of being captain a, a couple of times yeah. in the past. I helped him grow into that role. He he wasn't afraid to ask questions. There was me and Luke McCormack that helped him with, with, with you know questions or whatnot. And um, you know, he wasn't afraid to organise things for the team and he was very, very, very good captain for his age, um, and I'm I'm not surprised he's gone on to to play at the level he's playing at now. Um, he's at Derby County now, but he's he's had a couple of seasons mm. in the championship. You know, he's, he's played Cardiff, uh, done really well at Oxford. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he's for, for people think he's old. He's not old. He's not old. He's still a young centre half. He's still got another seven, eight, nine years, nine years in him. Do you know what I mean? He's, because he's played from from 17 years of age in, in Plymouth's first team, and he's grew into a, a really really good footballer and an incredible man. 
Yeah, only 30. Crazy. He could play a couple of seven years. Yeah. yeah. He must have played about 600 games now and now. It's 500. Well, he played nearly 250, I think, for Argyle. And he left when he yeah. was, what, 22, 23? So, yeah. yeah, you're right. I don't know whether you remember this, but we were, we were actually talking about it in the office the other day, bizarrely. I think it's because we were watching a video, uh, the Christmas video that our, our lads put out. And most of them, after they said their message, did a double thumbs up or a thumbs up. And I've never seen any of them do, do it before, ever. Just a random thumbs up. And then Rob McNichol in our office was like, well, I remember Curtis Nelson scoring a goal against Exeter City at the Devonport end. And he didn't really know what to do. And he just did a double thumbs up. Yeah. And he, and he said <laughs> he said that the lads gave him some after that. And I was just wondering whether you remember it. Just a no, double I thumbs up. That sounds like Nelson. That sounds like Nelson. <laughs> you know what? For his ties, he didn't score many goals. But when he scored no. goals, he always seemed to be very important goals. Um, so probably the occasion got the better of him and he was just ecstatic and thought, right, I'll just pop me for him. Unbelievable guy. Talking of important goals then, Pete, we've got to get a full um, sort of dive into this, into this Portsmouth one. I was actually yeah. looking through that season, considering, you know, you were a fairly decent goal scorer for a defender. Um I think you got, what did you get, eight for us in, in just under 100 games? Not, it's not bad at all for nine. a different... I think I got oh, was the, it nine? the Johnson's paint as well, but it didn't get marked on. I was a bit disappointed in that. Well, you know, when you go, yeah, well, you go and catch and it doesn't, uh, doesn't go down, well, but it was nine, nine goals for sure. We'll, we'll call it nine then, I believe you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in that second season, um, your, your three league goals came right at the end of the season. Like yeah. you, you saved them up for the, the crunch time. Good <laughs> um, Yeah, well, I think that let's, let, Joe Edwards did it for us last year. Didn't score all season, then scored like in the last four games as we as we won the league. So I'm, you know, I'm putting in the same category. Um, but yeah, that Portsmouth <laughs> semi final. Um, you shouldn't really play the. Se- oh, it was just Jamil Matt playing the second game. You and Gary Roberts had that big um, yeah. altercation, like you said. What? What was what was that whole semi final like? Because there are two clubs that felt like they didn't belong at this level. Yeah, oh, it was incredible. It was like dockyard derby around it as well, kind of thing. It was uh, it was incredible, and we, we went went into it knowing how good Portsmouth were, and it was really yeah. two teams that should have got automatic promotion, kind of thing. And I think the cherry on the cake would have been as both probably meeting in the final, um, but. You know, we ended up playing two legs in the semis. Uh, the atmosphere was incredible. You could feel it around the city. Uh, and then obviously going to Fratton Park, first leg and getting the second leg at home park, which was great for us, you know. Go to Fratton Park, do a job, bring them back here and, and, and beat them, which was, it sounds easy saying it now, but that was the plan and that's we executed it at perfection. Um, yeah, I suppose that first, that, that, that first leg, the 2-2, Jamil obviously scored both the goals, including that lovely lobbed bicycle kick. But just just being in the tie, going into a home leg, like yeah. being level, knowing that you know, you, you, you've got all your support to come. Yeah. How crucial is that? Or was well, that being spoken about? The second half of the first, the first leg, Charlie, uh, we couldn't get out of our own half. Hmm. There was just wave after wave of attack from Portsmouth. 
Uh, and I remember turning around to Nelson, looking at Carl McHugh and just saying, lads, get through it, just get through this. Like, keep the back door shut. Doesn't matter how we look, pour it in Rose Egg, can't score from there. Let's just get through this wave, because it literally, you could see we were out on our feet. Um, and we just couldn't, we couldn't change the momentum in the game, whatever we tried to do. I think Agafa tried to change formation and, you know, one or two personnel and the momentum was just constantly with Portsmouth and the Portsmouth roll behind the goal and it just seemed to be sucking the ball into our box and we defended so well, like, and we give ourselves the opportunity, like you've just said, to to come back to home park and it was an even drawn board. Let's, let's have it, you know, it's two boxes going into a, the 12th round and whoever wins... Whoever knocks each whoever knocks you out wins wins the bout. And uh, you know, we were trading blows in the first leg, that's for sure. So um but I, I believe over certainly the second game we were by far the superior team. We had chances to go and win the game. But over yeah. the over part of the two legs and the games we played them during the season, we, we, we proved we were more than capable of, of beating Portsmouth. We we went into them games with no fear and, and full of confidence. Yeah. The second game was nothing like the first game in terms of the sort of like, like you say, one hits, then one responds, one goes. It felt like we were totally in control of that game. But like you say, chances were coming and going. I remember, um, did, did Jamil hit the bar or just before you had the oh, corner that scored from? And Jake Jervis, uh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Keep a tip to over the bar, Ryan, also. I remember yeah. it like, yeah, mate, I could, honestly... Because I remember actually after I'd scored, um, Ben Close has an opportunity to equalise. Can you remember this? He? No. Yeah, I, I think I was in a blur. Ben goes straight up the other end in attack and he puts it over the bar. The ball bounces to him just outside the box and I think he puts it over the bar, then that was it, done. Game done. And everyone just falls to the knees kind of thing. But going back to why the game was different in the second leg, having feeling their moments at Fratton Park, I feel like Portsmouth put so much into that second half, like everything into that second half. And the, 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 they'd ran themselves into the ground and there wasn't enough time for them to recover. Um, and I felt like from our point of view, we were sat in a low block. We were conserving energy, being hard to beat. Um, we weren't really doing much running. We seemed to be just in a low block outside of our own box because we couldn't get out. And we, we, we rode the wave. We rode the Pompey wave. Um, and I think we conserved our energy a lot better. Mm. And then going yeah. into the second leg, we, were, we, were, we could have played the next day. We were buzzing. We couldn't wait for it to, to come round. Um, and I think it showed in, in our performance in the second leg. We, we definitely deserved to, to go to Wembley. Yeah. Um, you stood inside the penalty area. G's got the ball. You know his delivery is going to be spot on. <clears throat> what, what you say you remember it like yesterday is a test. And what what yeah. do you remember that goal then? Everything. I remember being very surprised that Ender Stevens was marking me and not Christian Burgess. And I'm thinking, why on earth is this small lad marking me here? So I thought we we didn't have no routine at the time. It was basically last minute. Let's go and attack the ball. We weren't setting anything up. You go front. You go back. We cover bases. Um, mm. So I just isolated him. I just pulled him to a back post by himself and I thought, if this gets over hit, I can out-jump him. He's, he's smaller than me. So I thought, I took Ender Stevens away from away from the big players and I thought, if GC gets the delivery right, then it's me and him who wants it the most kind of thing. So And he did. 
And I remember jumping, but I jumped too early and I headed the yeah. ball as I was landing. As I was coming down, I headed the ball and it hits off the back of his head, hits my head again and just loops into the goal. <laughs> it was fortunate, but I think we deserved it. We deserved that bit of luck after what the club had been through with the recent history. So it was meant to be. Yeah. And if we're using the boxing analogy, <clears throat> it was right on the bell. <laughs> Pandemonium all over the place. Jake Jervis jumps into the crowd. You get yeah. mobbed. I mean, I was down the other end of Home Park that day in the in in the at the Barn Park end. So yeah. it was all the other end to me. But I, I I've not, I've not other than getting promoted last year. I've not I've not really had a feeling like that since. It's an yeah. unbelievable feeling because it's so late. You kind of know that they're done. You know. Yeah. No, I've never I've never been in that situation in my full career where and especially me scoring the goal as well from a personal point of view. Yeah. yeah. Carmack come up to me after the game and said, You deserve it, mate. Like you deserve you deserve to be the person that scored the goal kind of thing after after what you've you've put your body through this season to play and things and um I really appreciated that coming from him because he's an Argyle legend and mm. he was something I said someone I certainly looked up to in the dressing room like if Luke McCormack spoke in the dressing room, you listened. Um, he didn't speak a lot, but when he did, you listened. He yeah. was a really, really, really good human being. And when he said that to me, that's when the penny dropped, and I was like, "Wow, like this is special." Like, um, and then it was just, to be honest, everything after that was a blur. Yeah. It was said, bodies on the pitch. Um, yeah. People mobbing me and, and, and the rest of the team. Um, and then that night was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine exactly what it would have been like. The Barbican would have been full. Yeah. It was a sunny day. Yeah. From the highs of that, though, Pete, I'm going to have to bring you right back down to earth here. Yeah. And your final game, which is mad to think. Um, yeah. It, it just... Maybe what you said about Portsmouth emptying themselves in that first leg. I don't know. You tell me. Did that happen to us in the final or was it something yeah, else? Because it, it, we just never got going, did yeah. we? I don't think we managed the occasion, mate. I don't. I think we played the occasion and not the game. Um, I know it's hmm. an easy day looking back, but like Wickham done to us the year previous in the semis, Wimbledon done to us in the final, they've done a job on us. Um you know, Kelvin Miller was incredible for us that season. Absolutely incredible. But I always think if he just went with his left foot to clear the ball instead of ducking that low to head it, it would have been a different scenario. But, you know, everyone makes... makes You have to make decisions in split seconds on the pitch. It's like... It's, hindsight's very easy. Um, but... Unbelievable occasion leading up to that. And what a disappointment. Like... Look, talk about being lower than a snake's belly after that game. You just feel like we we it was in our hands and we just we just give it away for free. We didn't even land a blow really. We didn't show mm. up. We didn't, we didn't represent ourselves in the best possible way. Um, going by the standard we'd set during the season, the way we played as a team, we played Wimbledon away and home, beat them twice. It was like. Phew, Let's go. And then all of a sudden, uh, Lyle Taylor turns up and, and pops one in and uh, we give a penalty away and, and that confirmer puts it away. And then yeah, that's it. Done and dusted. But you live to fight another day, mate. And if you look at them, 
them previous two seasons, what I was involved in going on to the next season, they say success isn't always zero to 100. You could see the team was slowly building its way to being back where it deserved to be. And third time lucky, mate. But unfortunately, yeah. I wasn't there to celebrate. <laughs> no, and, and there was a whole host of you that weren't there to celebrate it. Because, mm. you know, Hiram was only on, uh, on loan, of course, but he went back having played a, a big part in it. You... Yeah. Uh, Jamil didn't come back. Carl left. Kelvin Meller left. Curtis left. Ruben <coughs> Reed left. Like it, 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 it. I mean, what is it like that being your final game as well for for a club that obviously you'd you had a, a great affinity with even yeah. quite a short period I of felt time. Empty, mate. I felt very empty inside. I didn't get the opportunity to say goodbye to the fans. I felt really mm. empty. Um, obviously, it being my last game and it being the last game of the season it was, wasn't was a really nice situation to be in but ultimately at the end of the day like the list of players you've just reeled off a lot of players left to go on to pastures new you know they then the right to go to a higher level and and the other boys like myself like Carl McHugh like Ruben Reed. ultimately we weren't Derek Adams' players we were John Sheridan's and that's yeah. the nature of the beast that's football um, Derek Adams wanted these players and this is what happens in football. So, you know, you shake hands and, and you go the other way. And that's did you did you know it was your last game before you? Ran? Uh, you, you get a feeling. You get a feeling. The club offered me a contract, but it was talking gesture, to be totally honest. Yeah. And it wasn't nothing to do with the club. It was more to do with Derek Adams. You, I could see by the contract that it was like we're going we're, we're going to give him this contract, but we know he's not going to accept it. Do you, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I heard me a lot because I, I, I'd, I'd had a lot of special moments with the club. Um, I feel like I played a big part in getting it up to the other end of the table in League Two. Um, and I felt like I deserved another crack at the whip after getting the opportunity to and scoring the goal to take us to Wembley. Mm. And he didn't give me that. And fair, fair enough, hands up. You know, I have nothing bad to say about Derek Adams. He... He wanted his own players and, and that's it. And he showed that with the contract he offered me. Um, yeah. Because I, I do believe he didn't offer Sonny... Well, if you look at Sonny Bradley and, and, and myself, or Curtis Nelson and myself and Sonny Bradley, I don't think Sonny Bradley would have went, went to Plymouth for the same contract that I got offered. Plymouth Argyle have taken the lead at Stamford Bridge. Can you believe this? You're listening to the Argyle Podcast, the official podcast of Plymouth Argyle Football Club. After that, obviously, we, we moved on. Bristol Rovers, we stayed in the southwest, actually. Blackpool um, and Motherwell. And we've spoken about that quite a bit. Um, was it your idea to do the Alexis Sanchez spoof video? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, um, I went to Bristol and then my wife fell pregnant um, and I needed to move closer to home, you know, to commute. And uh, the Bristol Rovers manager, I knew him very well, Daryl Clark. I'd known him. He was a Hartlepool legend as a player. Yeah. Um, he, unbelievable guy again. He just said, yeah, listen, family comes first. If you find a club up north, um, you, can, you can move back closer to home in the summer. So... Um, Marcus Stewart rang me in the off-season and said he'd done a coaching licence with... Uh, Marcus Stewart was the assistant manager at Bristol Rovers at the time, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, he rang me in the summer and said he'd spoke to Gary Boyer. Um, Gary Boyer's really interested in taking me to Blackpool. 
uh, would I be interested? So I spoke to my wife. I thought Blackpool's not too far. It's an hour, an hour and a half in the car from home. Yeah, no problem. Signs three-year contract at Blackpool, and within the first two weeks, I knew I'd made a big mistake. Back to the Stevenage feeling. You walk into mm. a dressing room. A lot of people are commuting from all over the place. I had no emotional attachment to the club. Didn't feel anything at all. Just didn't, didn't get that vibe from day one. And that's important for me as a person because I play with my heart on my sleeve and I need to feel something. It's very hard to put everything inside of you on that pitch without you having a connection to the club you're playing for. So I knew straight away. Um, and one of the other options in that previous summer was Motherwell. And I chose Blackpool for geographical reasons, being closer to mm-hmm. home than the Motherwell. But Carl McHugh was at Motherwell. So uh, I'd been left out of four or five squads leading up to the end of August, um, taking me with the team, but being a 17th, 18th, 19th man, you know, 27-year-old, mm-hmm. 28-year-old season pro, a little bit like, what? why am I in this situation? Still training hard, doing nothing wrong. Just was in a really strange situation at Blackpool. So I speak to Carl McHugh, um, driving home from Bradford away one game, um, and he was suspended. He'd been sent off in the game before Motherwell, so he had time to speak to me, and he said he was going to go and speak to Robbo. And uh, Motherwell was selling Ben Hennigan to somewhere in England. I think it was Luton or Sheffield United. Um, So there was going to be a centre-half spot available. So Stephen Robertson rang me the next day. It was only like four or five days left to go to the end of August deadline day. And he said he's going to go and speak to Gary Bowyer, which I did, and, and sort a six-month loan out. So uh, I agreed to go to Motherwell on a six-month loan until January. Talk me through that signing video then as well. Well, the loan initially, the signing video wasn't there. Um, and then during the six-month loan, I, obviously I've not played football for a while because I've been the 18th, 19th man. So I'm chomping at the bit. I can't wait to get on the pitch. And again, Motherwell, very similar to Plymouth. Everyone's in the area. Very family, family-orientated family club. Amazing atmosphere. And I just take off like a rocket. And we get in the League Cup final against Celtic. We beat Rangers in the semi-final 2-0 at Hampden Park. And then the club offered me a, a two-and-a-half-year contract in the January, uh, Motherwell, which I didn't even think twice about taking. I took it straight mm. away. Um, and then comes the signing video. <laughs> the same time I signed for Motherwell in the January, Alexis Sanchez goes to Man United and and the media guy, Roscoe, comes up to me and he's like, yeah, do, do you fancy doing a little piano video, Pete? And me, me <laughs> any, anything to help you, pal? So, uh, yeah, i done it. It was good fun. Can you play the piano? My wife teaches piano, but I can't play it. No, I can't play it. I can play away in a manger, that's about it. But no, my wife teaches piano to, to kids on a Monday night. But um, oh, no, no. Rubbed off on you. No, definitely not. My youngest son plays on it all the time, so maybe it'll rub off on him, but not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you kind of touched on, you know, how well you did at Motherwell at the time um, before going off to India. And yeah. what, what is it like playing for one of the other teams? In Scotland, because you know Celtic and Rangers are obviously those two humongous sides, yeah. and every every three or four years there seems to be a cycle where like Kilmarnock will do well and finish third or whatever, and then Motherwell will do well, and then Aberdeen will do well, and then yeah, Hearts, Hibs, you know what is it? 
Is it is it weird playing in a league where yeah. you kind of know you're not going to win it? The objectives to be the best of the rest. Yeah. <laughs> the first goal is to finish in the top six for revenue purposes. Because in Scotland, the last five games of the season, I think. It's uh, like a playoff thing, isn't it? Yeah. The, so they'll split the league into two. There's the top six, then the bottom six. And obviously for revenue purposes, if you're in the top six, you play against Rangers and Celtic again, which is massive for the clubs with the, the following they bring home and away and, and whatnot. Mm. Um so the first objective is to get in the top six and then from there you're thinking, right, can we get into Europe? Um, I believe every season I was there we finished in the top six, which is a great achievement. And then obviously my final season we finished third, which got cut short because of COVID and then what happens, happens. But Stephen Robinson again for me at that time in my career now was at that time the best manager I'd played for. Yeah. With regards, he, he, as a manager, he made me want to become a coach. The way he, the way he was, uh, his attention to detail, his training sessions, the way he thought about... He had a thing about over 30-year-olds, under 30-year-olds, you know, with regards to the running sessions. And he used to always leave a bit of juice in your legs uh, as an over 30-plus um, and, you know, run the legs off the young boys kind of thing. He... But his attention to detail, tactical awareness and, and uh, the way he viewed the game was opened my eyes for sure. And then um, that successful season we had, finishing third, there was also a, a little bit of a transition period at the club where, um, you know Steve McManus? Have you heard of him? I have heard of him, yeah, yeah, yeah. He played for Celtic? Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, he was our under-18s coach at Motherwell, under-20s or under-18s coach, and then he got the opportunity to go to Celtic, so we moved to Celtic. And then somebody called Morris Ross came in um, as the under-18s and under-20s coach, and he ended up, after that, coming with the first team because, obviously, he also had ideas. I don't know whether it was from Dick Advocat or from his experience of playing under Advocat at Rangers, but Morris Ross seen the game in a different way. Um, amazing. Amazing coach, and I think he helped Robbo a lot. You know, he gave Robbo a lot mm. of his ideas, and and they talked about go through ideas back and forth at each other, and and that's when we we certainly, as Motherwell as a football club, our philosophy and fundamentals took a step to to the next level, and you could really see on the pitch we were we were starting to develop into a serious football team. Yeah, J- just to finish on, um, and I'm going to go back to India again with this. <clears throat> okay. so, what um, what it's obviously such a humongous country that has uh, billions of people. Yeah. Um, but football has never taken off massively though. But how is it? Well, that's the perception actually. How is it once you're there? Like, do you get crowds? Are people interested in football? Yes. So, yeah. so obviously everyone knows India is predominantly a, a cricket. Company, yeah. uh, country, sorry, company, cricket uh, country. <laughs> but there is three states in India what are more football, I would say, and, and certainly two for sure. So um, Kerala is massive, mm-hmm. massive football state. Goa is a massive football state and Calcutta is a massive football state. Calcutta also have cricket teams, but football mm-hmm. is, is really big in Calcutta. But there's a lot of states you go to... Uh, 
the following is next to nothing, like zero. They yeah. don't, I beg your pardon, they don't really understand football um, in some states. They watch it, IFL, every game's televised. They're trying to grow it out there. It's only the 10th season now, so it's, it's still fairly new still. Um, but, you know, they're, they're making big, big strides um, with regards to promoting it. Um, the quality of the coaches coming into the country, the quality mm. of the, the foreigners, Brazilians, Spaniards, uh, German, Dutch. There's some serious South American players in, in that league, you know, that could comfortably play in the championship in England, you know, really, really gifted technically. Um, and I believe they are bringing the Indian players on at a rapid, yeah, uh, rapid okay. because the you know, Indian players are, are, are very, very willing to learn, you know, the, the want to listen, the want to learn and they're developing at a, a serious rate now. Um, and when I say developing, I don't mean technically, I mean ta tactically and uh, game understanding up here. You know, the, mm. they were very, my first season out there, the players were very reactive to situations, uh, done something but didn't understand why they'd done it, if that makes sense. Um mm -hmm. And now you can see a massive change in, in the mindset of the Indian players, the tactical awareness, um, and the learning very quickly. Um, and that's, that's credit to, to the AIFF who, who run it and also the, the quality of the coaches that the, the clubs are bringing into India. Well, just on quality of coaches, you, you obviously mentioned Owen Coyle was the, the manager of uh, Jamshir Spur when you were there, and he's, yep. he's still out there. Um, Simon Grayson, I know, has had spells out there. Yeah, um, and Aidy Boothroyd, Steve Coppel, Aidy Boothroyd, Steve Coppel, and also Oxford went and got their manager from yes from, from India, the, the, yeah. Buckingham, didn't he? Yeah, so yeah. There's the 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 market, as you put it, is obviously growing and being looked at as yes. well for a club that's at I the think, top of League I One. From that point of view also, Des Buckingham has been part of the City Group for some time now. So he was in Australia um, at Melbourne and he made the transition to the City Group, moved him to Mumbai, which is also owned by mm. Man City, Mumbai. So, and then fair play to Des, you know, he's took, I don't want to say a risk, but he's backed his own ability and yeah. uh, moved outside of some ways, probably felt comfortable for the last five or six years and, and grew as a coach. And now he's backed himself to go back to his hometown club, a club he started at as a coach. Mm. And now he's the head coach. Um, and he's a great guy. I've spoken to Des a few times, um, got his number, sp speak with him during the last couple of seasons, spoke to him obviously in between games and looking at the way his Mumbai team played, um, I think it'll, be a, it'll take time. Um, the culture transition for him from going to Australian yeah. football to India and back to English football. You know, he's been out of the country for a while, so it will take time. But he's, uh, his identity and the way he plays, I think it will be successful in, in that league for sure because he, uh, he's really good at, at creating good environments. Yeah. And you mentioned that the growing nature of the Indian league it, with new teams like your one. Um, yep. coming into it and the structure that's there with a, a couple of leagues and yeah. the quality of players. Again, just looking through Ryan yeah, Edwards well, is out at the moment, Carl McHugh. It's took time. Yeah, Carl McHugh's yeah. been out there. He's a stalwart in India. I think they're going to build a statue. <laughs> he got the statue <laughs> there too, man. No, I think um, 
So obviously, initially, the ISL was a franchise. So you have to, similar to the NLS, you have to buy your way into into the league, and mm-hmm. there's no relegation. Now the now there's promotion from the league below the I League to the ISL, and from next season there will be relegation. So they're slowly changing the format. They're growing teams, they're introducing teams, and they're growing the standard, uh, the grassroots, the academies out there. There was only one academy, the Tata Academy, um, which a lot of the Indian national team players have come through. Um, but now I believe uh, the starting academies in Odisha, um, they're looking at starting academies in Goa now. So it's very, very at the beginning stages with regards to grassroots. And this is down to, in my honest opinion, down to lifestyle. Um, you know, not they're not as lucky as, as what we are in this country. Um, there's a big gap in middle class, you know, you're either very wealthy or you're very poor. And it's just giving these kids the opportunity to to learn something new. And it's going to take time because the country is absolutely ginormous. Yeah, I'll tell you how big it is. When we play away games, we have to get connecting flights. <laughs> That's how big it is. Connecting flights in the same country. <laughs> that is crazy, isn't it? That is absolutely yeah. massive. Have your family been out at all? Yes, my wife came out. Um, so my wife's pregnant now, my third child, but she came out in November for a week. Uh, yeah. yeah, about eight or nine days. She came out with my brother-in-law. My kids didn't come, obviously, so it was quite difficult. Um, mm. but she came out to Goa. We were based in Goa at the time. She came out there for a week, 10 days, but that's the first time she's been. Obviously, first season was, was uh, bio bubble. <clears throat> so no yeah. family were allowed, and then second season I was based in Jamshapur, which uh, isn't really a great place to visit. To be honest, it's very difficult to get to. Right. Uh, well, best of luck with with the rest of this season, um, Pete. As well, um, oh, fingers crossed for you. It's time for Green in sixty seconds. Just to, to finish off, we do this with every guest on the podcast um, that is playing a significant chunk. I've got a quiz for you okay are you ready for it go on fire away man it's called it's, it's called green in 60 seconds and um basically i give you clues on your former teammates um <clears throat> and you've got to tell me who the teammate is from the clues okay you've got to see how many you can do in a minute uh so for example if i said and they're all former clubs. So if I said Sunderland, Chesterfield, Hartlepool, Stevenage, Bristol Rovers, Blackpool, Motherwell, Jamshed Sport, who would that be? Me. Good. Do you get the premise? Does that count, by the way? That counts, huh? That, that doesn't count, no. <laughs> Come on, mate. Are you ready? I'm ready, mate. Come on. Let's go. Reading, Dundalk, Bradford, Motherwell, ATK, Calma Oxford, Cardiff, Blackpool, Derby. Yes, Nelson. Oldham, Chester, Morecambe, Rochdale, York, Hartlepool. Dewey Alexander. Kidderminster, Rochdale, Torquay, Wickham, Brentford, Rotherham, West Brom, Peterborough, Warsaw, Oldham, Yeovil, Exeter, Forest Green, Cheltenham, Western St. Mary. Ruben Reid. <laughs> Celtic, Bohemians, St. Mirren, Huddersfield, Ross County, CSKA, Sofia, St. Johnston. Uh. Graham Carey. Liverpool, Leicester, Palace, MK Dons, Wickham, Hartlepool, Notts County, Crawley, Woking, Torquay, Braintree, Romford. Oh. You can skip. 
Good. Palace, Crawley, Bristol Rovers, Northampton, Exeter, MK Don. Uh, Bristol City, Cheltenham, Oldham, Cardiff, Fulham. Bobby Reid. Yeah, well done. That's your minute up. So, quick count through. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's good. It's very who is, good. Who is the Liverpool one, mate? Uh, Jason Banton. Oh, Banton. I didn't know he started it. That's what threw me. Yeah. I didn't know well, he started yeah. at Liverpool. Yeah, I could have put Arsenal in there as well, but I think yeah. I'm stretching it a little bit, to be honest. Um, Seven's yeah, not bad, yeah. I must be top of the league now, am I? Well, no. Unfortunately, you are not top of the league. You're about <laughs> fourth. Um, Nance, Kevin Nanskeville, top of the league with 11. So, yeah. Well there you go. Not bad, though. Not bad. Um, and again, thanks for coming on, Pete. Really not have bad. loved chatting to you. And uh, best luck with the rest of the season in India. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. This is the Argyle Podcast. Well, thanks a lot for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Plenty of other stories like that one uh, in all the other episodes that are all available to listen to on our website, pafc.co.uk. If you're new to the podcast or you haven't listened to all of them, they are all on there. 128 of them now. Plenty for you to go back to listen to and enjoy. As always, if you've got a suggestion for a guest, uh, someone that you would like to hear from that we haven't spoken to yet, then feel free to uh, drop us a suggestion. Our email address is media at pafc.co.uk. The Argyle Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode.